Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 will be our text this morning. We are uh, continuing our series that we've been in for the month of November, uh, that the church is a big deal. And uh, we've been looking the first few weeks at the importance of the church. Last week, we talked about the owner of the church is Jesus. And so our value uh, as a church is all because we belong to him. And so it's it's, my, it's maybe been maybe what you'd call pretty theological up to this point, and this morning's going to be very, very practical. That if the church is a big deal, which it is, then that has implication for how I live my life and how I spend my time. And so you should have received on your way in a little puzzle piece. How many of you got that? Hold that up. Yeah, quite a few of you. If you didn't get one, you can pick one up on your way out to remember the sermon by. I know you'll want to do that, right? Uh, But keep this out because I'm going to illustrate the text this morning as we work our way through it. So um, Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 3, if you're able to stand, uh, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Romans 12, verse 3, Paul's writing here under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Father, help us now as we want to learn from your Word. Uh, Help us remove any distractions that might be in our minds and in our hearts, and would you, by your Spirit, uh, speak to us really help us see, not just intellectually that the church is a big deal, but practically in how we live life. And I need you to do that, God. So I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you drive by this sign probably every single week. In fact, some of you drive by it every day. And some of you, particularly if you have kids or grandkids in the car, probably stop often, get fed, and go on about your day. And the caption underneath this sign says, Billions Served. Now, you no doubt probably realize that the sign that I'm referring to is the golden arches of McDonald's, right? Any big McDonald's fans? (laughs) Boo. Wow. Okay. Tough crowd. Literally, I mean, McDonald's, it is momentary pleasure followed by incredible guilt, <laughs> eventually leading to the hospital, right? <laughs> but no, seriously, have you ever eaten McDonald's? Have you ever eaten McDonald's and 30 minutes later thought, I'm really glad I did that? <laughs> Probably not. But regardless of whatever you think about McDonald's food, the reality is for the past 70 years, McDonald's has been an icon of the fast food industry. 
It has been a symbol of a consumer-driven culture. Sociologist George, George Reitzer from the University of Maryland wrote a book a few years ago and called, called The McDonaldization of Society. And in it, he gave three ways that you can know that you've been what he called McDonaldized. He said, the first thing is this, it's a need for efficiency. We don't want any inconvenience. The reason why we go to a fast food restaurant is we want our food fast. I mean, if we wanted to like sit down and take time, we'd go somewhere else. There's an expectation that we'll get it now, and that spills over into a lot of areas of life where we don't want to wait. The second thing he identified is what he called calculability. That is, we want to feel like we're getting a good deal. So when you buy five $1 hamburgers, like you think you're making money off of McDonald's. I mean, it's such a good deal. I mean, why would you buy one quality hamburger for $5 when you can buy rubbish? I mean, when you can buy McDonald's. Five hamburgers for $5. Now, that's an amazing deal. And then that spills over into life where you're always looking to see, I'm willing to compromise quality to get quantity. The third thing he identified was predictability. He said, you want a good experience. So when you go to any McDonald's, you expect the same taste of the food. You expect the same kind of decor. You you expect the same kind of customer service. There's a a sense in which you have an experience in mind that you expect every time you go, and that spills over into life. And this McDonaldization of society becomes marks of a consumer mentality because it's, we don't ever want to be inconvenienced, we always want to feel like we get a good deal, and our experience really matters. Now, here's what's really interesting. Studies have been done on how this consumer mentality has spilled over into the church. In fact, there was a USA Today article entitled Mick Church, where they interviewed a very famous megachurch pastor, of which I will not name, and they asked him, can you explain the reason for the rapid growth of your congregation? And here's what he said. I, I applaud him for his honesty marketing. Ask consumers what they want, then let them have it their way, which just so happens to be Burger King. (laughs) The article concluded, to attract churchgoers today, you've got to please the customer. Give them what they want, don't ask for money, no Bible thumping, and and happy customers will come from California to Maryland to eat up your fast food religion. That's really insightful. And there's a lot that I could say about that, but let me just say, at least in short, I absolutely believe that the church must remain relevant to the culture in which it's been planted. That's Missions 101 without compromising the Word of God. All right? Amen. Let's get that straight. But my question for us is, though, that is a given, but when we think about how we relate to the church, is our attitude more often than not, what will I get? 
Do you find yourself asking, what will I get, more than you find yourself asking, what can I give? Is your relationship with the church, that is the people of God, more about self-gratification or is it about service? And the reason why I ask that is because here in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul in the text that we just read is a lot more concerned about how many serving than he is how many served. He's concerned about a gathering of Christians in Rome that are failing to, uh, failing to understand the importance of serving one another as the body. Now, he writes in verse 1, very familiar verse, and he says, I appeal to you to be what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, I want you to be completely surrendered, totally sold out, laying your life on the altar before God, surrendered to Him. Verse 2, and I don't want you to be conformed to the world, but I want you to be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we tend to think of this total surrender and this transformation as being just a part of your individual walk with Jesus. The problem with that thinking is read the rest of the verses. Paul grounds those two things in the participation of the local church. Or let me put it this way. Your total surrender to God and your transformation in God has everything to do with your service to God in His church. Notice verse 3. For, there's the ground, so we're coming out of verse 1 and 2. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Here's Paul's concern. His concern is Christians in Rome are thinking too highly of themselves. They're drunk. They're drunk but they're not drunk on an alcoholic beverage, they're drunk on pride. They've got an ass on their chest. They think they're something special. And the reality is, beloved, that the greatest obstacle keeping you from serving God the way He wants you to serve Him is you. My biggest obstacle to serving God the way God wants me to serve Him is me. It's myself, and here's why. Pride will hinder your service in one of two ways. Number one, it will either keep you from serving or it will make your serving your identity. Let me explain those two. Pride, this don't think too highly of yourself, can keep you from serving God in this way. You become so focused in your life, you don't have time to serve anybody else. It's all about, man, I've got a job, I've got to make money, I, I have hobbies, I have a family to raise, all of which are really good things. But if you're not careful, pride becomes an expression of I'm living my life all about my life and there's no room or time to serve the people of God. 
So pride can hinder your service in keeping you from serving in the first place, and pride can also hinder your service by making you view your service as being more than it is in this sense. All of a sudden, you start to think, it's not that the church is a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal. I mean, what would this church do without me? I mean, what? I mean, the people of God would just crumble if it weren't for the gifts of God displayed in my life. Behold the glory that is me. Now, we laugh at that, but that's actually what's going on in Rome and also in the church in Corinth, which I will reference a lot today, 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, for instance, Paul has to remind them, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, who do you think you are? I'm such a great body part, I don't need the others. It's pride. In fact, the church of Corinth, like they looked at their spiritual gifts and they thought, man, I've got the best gift of all. In fact, Paul will come right out of 1 Corinthians 12 and ironically write 1 Corinthians 13. Although it wasn't 1 Corinthians 13 then. And do you know what he says in 1 Corinthians 13? Let me paraphrase it for you. I don't give a hoot what gift you have. I don't care if you have the tongues of men and angels. I don't care if you have prophetic powers. I don't care if you have faith to move mountains. I don't care if you have knowledge whereby you can solve all mysteries. If you don't have love, you are as useless as a piano player in a marching band. (laughs) That's my paraphrase, all right? Why? Because you were given what you were given, not for you. You were given what you were given to use it that it might glorify God in serving His people. You could have all those gifts, but if you don't have love, what what good would it do? Because the whole point in having the gift was to use it for others. Paul learned this. In other words, if you're really going to serve God the way God wants you to serve Him, you're going to have to get over yourself. Paul did it, because listen to what he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I don't count my life as any value or precious to myself. I don't. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Jesus did the same thing. Mark 10, you know that those who consider, are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but what? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Come here. At some point, you have to stop being a consumer and start being a servant. At some point, the Christian life stops being about you and starts becoming about others and the blessing you can be in their life. True serving comes with humility. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And you say, well, how do I get humble? 
This will not shock you if you've heard me preach more than a sermon. The grace of God. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You'll see this again in verse 6 later on too. But Paul's talking about the grace, not that saved him, though that's true, but the grace that set him apart for ministry. And it's out of that grace that he's going to challenge them in their service. In other words, when you understand the grace of God in your life, you can't be prideful when it comes to serving God. It's impossible. Paul will say to the church in Corinth, um, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if you realize the grace of God in your life, arrogance goes out the window. At least it should. And here's why. Now hear this, hear this. It's because grace destroys selfishness. And do you know why understanding God's grace in your life destroys selfishness? Because you begin to realize the cost that Jesus paid to even give you the opportunity to serve in the first place. You and I don't even deserve this opportunity. There is nothing, this will get the loudest amen in the building, there is nothing in and of myself that I deserve to be up here. Really? Nothing? I love you. You're awesome. Yeah, I don't deserve this. And you don't deserve to be here, much less an opportunity to serve in the body of Christ for the glory of Christ. Grace bought that for you. Jesus bought that for you. So, so when you begin to understand that, how can you be selfish when it comes to serving God when you understand the cost it took to even provide the opportunity in the first place? Grace will also destroy superiority, the S on the chest. I'm super Christian. Why? Because grace reminds you you weren't even qualified to serve until Jesus made you qualified. What, what grace reminds you, it's all of Him, it's not of you, and therefore you can serve in humility. You with me? Now take out your puzzle piece. We're going to play a game. No, we're not going to play a game. It's an illustration. Hold it up. I want to see it. And here's the, here's the point of the text. This puzzle piece represents your life. And particularly if Berean is home for you, this represents you. Now, if you're here and you're just checking us out, then this could potentially represent you if this is where you end up calling home. And here's the point. It is by God's grace that you play a role here. Every piece of this puzzle matters. And if this is home, it means God has called you here, and that means you have a role. You are a piece of the puzzle by the grace of God. But you ain't the only piece. Hold them up. Look around. There's a lot of pieces of the puzzle in this place, which means it's not about you. It's about us to the glory of Him. You have a peace by the grace of God in the body of Christ, but you're not the only peace. So humbly serve. 
Here's the second thing is not only serving in humility, but serving in diversity. Pick it up in verse four. I'm just getting warmed up. Y'all ready? Hey, you don't even have to make lunch plans. I've got McDonald's for everybody. (laughs) Verse four, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's a great sermon on membership right there, but that's for another day. Paul says three really important things. Number one, we are one body. We have multiple services, a whole bunch of ministries, but we're one body. Remember that Paul is writing here to believers gathered in Rome. He's not just writing, hey, this is just kind of out there for any universal church, whatever. No, he's writing to specific Christians gathered in a geographic location. We are a group of believers gathered in a geographic location. We are one body, but two, we have many different members. Boy, do we. All right, we have many different members, which means thirdly, we all have a different function. We all play a different role. Now, Paul says this also to the church in Corinth in chapter 12 when he says, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Or in verses 19 and 20, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I love Paul's metaphorical use here of the human body. He's giving you a metaphor of of the people of God and how they are the body of Christ, how they work together just like the human body. So think about your human body, your body. It's a great illustration because you don't have to go far to imagine it. You have a head, arms, hands, legs, feet, eyes, ears, nose, a mouth. If you're from Tennessee, a tooth. (laughs) I'm from there. I can say that. Heart, lungs, liver, kidney, bladder, muscles, tendons, bones, nerves, blood vessels, a heart, a brain, and they all do a different function. One pumps blood, one breathes, one hears, one sees. It's a lot of different members, but they all have a different function. You ready? So that together they make up a healthy body. They must work together in order for the body to function the way the body is meant to function. Another, like we've played a game with the puzzle, now let's do an exercise. Hold your fingers up and do that, right? Sprinkles, all right? I can make a great cheerleader. All right, you you move your fingers. Do you realize what's taking place in your body right at this moment? Your fingers do not have muscles. They have tendons, And those tendons are attached to muscles that run up the arm. Do you know how many muscles it takes in one arm to do this action? 70. Which means when you do this, right? Now I'm from Tennessee. I'll take my shoes off and use my toes. Do you know how many muscles you're using? 140 muscles just to do this. Think about how many pieces, members of the body is at work just to go over there to the piano and play some chords. It's a whole bunch of members working together to do one task. What a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, isn't it? So take out your puzzle piece. What is is the text teaching us here in this? 
It's this. In fact, I want you to look to a neighbor who has a puzzle piece, and I want you to compare yours to theirs, all right? Will you do that? Stop trying to force them to go together, all right? I know how y'all do puzzles. Come on, go! Now, as you do that, you probably discovered that theirs is a different shape than yours, may even be a different color. Yours may go up in the corner of the puzzle. Theirs may be right in the middle of the puzzle, but here's the point right here. The puzzle's not complete until every piece is used. The puzzle is not complete until every piece is used. You need diversity. We are one body, but we have many members and they all play different roles. Without your peace, please hear me, please, without your peace, the picture that is Berean Baptist Church will never be as complete as it could be. And the whole design of your life was to be connected with others, serving in the body of Christ to make it healthy and active. Let me give you two implications, I think, from the text and from this point is this. The first is, could you imagine with me the power of our unity? Imagine the power of our togetherness. What we could do if we were all joined together and served. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a Peanuts cartoon with Lucy and Linus. And uh, Linus is watching TV, and Lucy comes in and demands that he turn the channel. And he looks at her and says, who do you think you are to just walk in in here and boss me around? And here's Lucy's response. She goes, I'll tell you, these five fingers. (laughs) Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Some of y'all are like, that's my sister, right? (laughs) The next uh, frame in the cartoon is Linus going, and what channel would you like, (laughs) right? But I thought about that. I was like, can you imagine the impact that we could make in this church, in this community, and around the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ if we were all in this together? I dream about that. what it would look like, the impact that we would make as we all recognize that we have been gifted and we serve a role, and whatever that role is, we are doing that to the glory of God and to the edification of the body. To teach the next generation the truth of God, to encourage a sister whose life is falling apart, to edify one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to grow in the Word of God, to share with somebody how they can know Jesus as their personal Savior. Listen to me, folks. If that's not why we're here, then why in the world are we here? If this is nothing more than McDonald's, we have totally missed the point of the body of Christ. I stand here pushing a year 
into this thing. And some of you could speak to this far greater than I can, but for the past 50 years, Berean Baptist Church has made a tremendous impact for the sake of the gospel in this community. It is only by God's grace as he has gifted you and you have used those gifts, but you hear me big, loud, bold, and clear. If we are going to make a greater impact in the next 50 years, it will take every single one of us. We're one body with many members, and we all have a role to play. Imagine the power of our unity. But a second implication would be this, and, and, and quicker would be, see the beauty of our diversity. I don't, I don't know what, what you'll say in response to this, but it's like, aren't you glad that not everybody in this room is like you? Some of you don't know what to say about that. I, I, I don't know. I'm pretty cool. You know, it's like, <laughs> of course you don't want that. There's no beauty in that. I'll tell you what's beautiful. Seeing people with different skin colors and from different backgrounds and different economic classes all coming together because we have unity in nothing else but Jesus Christ. And we put aside our preferences, we put aside our differences, we put aside our minor disagreements, and we come around in a diverse way the unity we have in Jesus. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's what the world needs to see. Which means, and I'm pulling this from 1 Corinthians 12, what you cannot say if you want to embrace the diversity of the body, many members, you can't say, I don't need others. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. I'm big time, they're small time. Wrong. You don't think small parts matter? Go home this afternoon, cut your toes off, see how that affects your body. <laughs> Little things make a big difference, so you can't say, I don't need that, which also means you can't say, I don't have a role. You can't say 1 Corinthians 12, but I'm not a hand. Big whoop, we don't need a church full of hands. Whatever role it is, however small you may think it is, it's important. When you downplay your gift and minimize your role, that's not humility, that's ingratitude. God gave you that gift, that talent, that role for a reason. Who are you to call it small? The power of our unity and the beauty of our diversity is all seeing the serving in the body of Christ that God has called us to. One final point and we're done. And that is serving in this sense of, of personal ministry. I take it from verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So there's grace again. I told you we'd come back to it. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to faith, service and serving and on and on. That's a, just a small list of the kinds of gifts. There are, are many more. Um, now, this is going to be really profound. Everybody sitting down? Okay, good. I mean, what I'm about to say is going to make you think, I bet he spent 30 years in seminary to figure that out, 
to, to exegete the Bible the way he does. You ready? God gave you a gift to use it. Deep, deep. It's deep, Pastor. What does Paul say? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You were given a gift to use it. You were given grace to be a steward of it. So the question is, are you wasting it? Are you wasting the grace that God has given you and the gift that He has given you? Listen to how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It's the same thing. As each has received a gift, so every believer has one, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see? You have a gift. Use it. Why? Because you're to steward the grace of God that He has given to you. Now, some of you might say this morning, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know uh, the way in which that I can serve. Well, in some way, we, we are giving you some things of, of areas that we really need people to step up and serve in. By the way, just a little quick like footnote, you know, um, I get shocked sometimes when people like get upset because you preach a sermon on calling people to service. Can you not, can you not see this text and think like, how could I as a pastor not call you to service? I want your joy. And I'm convinced that your passivity, if that applies to you in the Christian life, means that you're not experiencing the fulfillment of the Christian life. So, yeah, yeah, I'll call you to service. These are some ways we really need people to step up and serve, like yesterday. And there are other places that you could serve that may not even be listed here. So this is one point of application. Here's a second. If you're still, but I still don't know what my gift is. I'm going to give, you these, give these to you rapid fire. You can go online if you don't get all this and watch the sermon for free. It's worth what you pay for it and get these again. I want to start you down the journey of identifying your gift if you don't know what it is. Ready? Number one is surrender to God. You need to start by just saying, here am I. I want to serve. Number two is know that you have a gift. So no matter what points of frustration you may experience, keep coming back to the fact, I believe that God has gifted me for something. Number three, pray for wisdom. Number four, don't covet other gifts. You're not them. The last thing in the world you want to do is start off your journey in discovering how you're gifted is to say, well, I just want to do what she does. That's the wrong way to start. Don't covet other gifts. Be open to learn how God has gifted you. Number five, ask yourself what brings you the most joy. Because I believe that your giftedness is directly tied to fulfillment. What brings you joy? Uh, number six, is ask others who know you, and I would add, are willing to be honest with you. Okay, not your grandma who thinks you do everything well. You need a friend that's willing to look at you and say, not so much. No, I don't see it. Ask people to speak into your life. Number seven is trial and error. 
Serve. If it's not going well, find somewhere else to serve and keep trying till you find that area of fulfillment. Number eight, look for God's blessing, ways in which that God is at work in you and it's blessing other people. And nine, as it becomes clear as to what that is, devote yourself fully to it as a living sacrifice before God. All right? So take up your puzzle piece and look right here. You ready? The whole point of a puzzle is to put it together. Your piece, your life was designed to be used of God in His body. The puzzle is meant to go together. That's its design. And if you refuse to do that, it is only to the detriment of your own joy that you do so. Well, let me leave you with this thought. Um, When my kids were babies, they didn't make much of a contribution to our family. I mean, other than the fact that they were a contribution in and of themselves, but, you know, financially and other things, they didn't provide much. They pretty much... They had an easy life. They'd sit around screaming at their parents, making a mess, expecting us to wait on them hand and foot and do it every day. And as they've gotten older, we've expected a little bit more out of them. But I got to thinking, I wonder when they're 30. When they're 30, if they're still in my home, (laughs) screaming at their parents, making a mess, expecting us to wait on them hand and foot and clean up after them, They will pray I'm wrong about the timing of the rapture because the great tribulation will have started. (laughs) I wasn't joking, all right? (laughs) Why is that? Because their lack of contribution when they were four months old was cute. Their lack of contribution at 30 is immature. And you know I love you. And if you're new here to Berea, and I'm not speaking to you at this moment. But folks, if you've been around here for a while, and you've been a consumer, that may have been cute when you started, but it's a sign of your maturity now. Because a mark of spiritual maturity is when you are transformed from consumer to servant. What's your role? What is it? Maybe you're here and you are new, and my question is, do you sense that God is calling you to make Berean your home? Others of you, you're not a part of the body of Christ because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Dear friends, that's where you must start. Don't worry about serving grace. Experience this morning saving grace from the Lord Jesus Himself. You pass this sign every week. You stop, you get fed. And you go on about your day. But the sign I'm referring to is not the sign of a fast food restaurant. 
It's the sign of a local church. The question is, is this just a place where you come to be served? Or is this a place where God has called you to serve? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would make clear to us um, what our response needs to be from your word this morning. For some, it is saving grace. For some, it is serving grace to reevaluate their life, to be a living sacrifice transformed by Jesus Christ only to find themselves serving in the body of Christ. That's the flow of your word this morning. May it be the flow of our life as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.